Hello and welcome to the Gridiron Show and it's a week out from the draft so we're bringing you our general manager special. Myself, Simon Clancy and Matthew Sherry will break down the process of the draft for front offices and we'll hear from Jerry Glanville, former Falcons head coach and two Hall of Fame GMs in Ron Wolfe and Bill Polian telling us stories of some of the most famous draft incidents of all time. Welcome to the Gridiron Show. Less than a week till the 2020 draft. More and more details kind of coming out daily about what the presentation is going to look like. But still so many questions on exactly how this draft is going to work during the coronavirus pandemic. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that everyone is uh, locked and excited about getting something meaningful from the world of sport that, that can be both a diversion but also finding out exactly how a juggernaut like the NFL is going to handle it. Uh, we had plans for our, our GM special but as uh, unsurprisingly at these times things fall through and things change. However, we've still got some absolutely fantastic interviews coming up for you. You're going to hear from the likes of Bill Polian, from uh, Ron Wolf, from Jerry Glanville as well. Uh, you know, it's going to be Big, big names from the world of NFL talking to you about the process of some of the most famous case studies uh, in drafting and in the process of doing so. And I'm delighted to say that Matthew Sherry, editor of Gridiron, and our draft expert, Simon Clancy, are alongside me to lend you a genuine expert eye on this. How are you doing, boys? Good, mate. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thank you, pal. Very well. Indeed, getting genuinely hyped for the draft now. It's a weird one this year that I haven't... Even though there's obviously a lot more free time, I feel like until the last few days, I hadn't got been properly ramping up for it. But then like listening to your mini pods, I've been going and watching a lot more like NFL Network and stuff. And yeah, a week out, I'm now getting really excited for what we've got ahead of us. I mean, for Sai, he's in that massive come down phase the week before after such a, especially this year, I think, because he is, how nervous are you, Sai? <laughs> um... I'm not nervous. I'm uh, nervous barely sleeping. Barely sleeping. I've lost <laughs> about two stone. Uh, come out of rash. Uh, no, I mean it's uh, it's exciting times. But you know, this time next Thursday, I'm probably going to be a nervous wreck. Are you because you guys get together to watch the draft normally? Are you guys going to be doing a Zoom meeting throughout? And most importantly, Matthew Sherry, are you going to be recording the whole thing for us so that we can see the video evidence of Simon's reactions to each of the Dolphins' picks? Like I cannot confirm or deny whether people who aren't even really related to this show have urged me to to do. To do to <laughs> I'm just going to name them. Ed Malliansai is is absolutely <laughs> desperate for me to because I said we, I initially said we'll be watching it together and he was like honestly if you live stream it I'll, I'll watch it. <laughs> that's so funny. That's so funny. I so, love it. That's that's very funny. So yeah, I mean we I, I've just realised that I'm going to be able to I'm going to be able to watch it live because Lee has been able to change a day off, which means I'm now mixing Daddy Daycare with. With work, and as anybody who heard me on Talksport Two found out earlier on this afternoon, um, but yeah, uh, Leah is off next Friday, so I'll be watching it live, and I will, provided Sai will have me again, be be in a permanent Zoom conversation with him while it's going on, and I'm sure will. Are you getting involved? 
Uh, no, I'm going to be part of the live draft coverage, but I'm sure we can tap into you at some point and maybe we'll get you guys involved at some point as well. So there's going to be live coverage going on on the radio. Simon, nice. what, by the way, Matthew's referring to is when earlier he joined me on TalkSport 2 to talk about the fact that it's the 20-year anniversary of Brady getting picked and, and it's also Bill Belichick's birthday, coincidentally, on the same day. You can uh, imagine... Did you know that was on the same day as before I didn't weekend. until this morning. I had no idea either. I, I don't know, I don't know how that piece of information hasn't been more widely known. I had absolutely no idea until this morning. Um, but during the interview, and particularly at the very end when he was trying to sell the weekly magazine to everyone, uh, we had a very loud Thomas in the background demanding various things of him, and he just <laughs> said, I'm sure you can hear, I've got a screaming three-year-old in the background, but I'll try and say this as quickly what, as I can. What, what actually happened, Will, is... I spent the entirety of the first 10 minutes with him chasing me around the house. And and, it, and by the end, he'd cornered me to the point where I just, I just, <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't get out. So yeah, he, right, um, right. He, snuck, he snuck into the picture uh, maybe last week or the week before. <laughs> days seem to run into days now. But uh, he sort of saw, I don't know if anybody's seen the, um, I don't know if anybody's seen the Twitter thing with the guy who squirts the squirty cream and the dog sort of just, comes out the side of the cupboard. Thomas essentially did that, but instead of the squirty cream, he just wanted a poo. So you just sort of saw his head sort of coming to the side of the screen like a mongoose. And then it was just like, I want a poo. And it was, it was exactly the same as a squirty cream dog, except the place white squirty cream with brown squirty cream, I suppose. Oh, God. Oh, God. Amazing. Fantastic work. Right, let's get into the, the discussion then. We wanted to talk a little bit about the um, uh, about the draft process uh, and the process for scouts and the process. I mean, I guess it's going to be so different this year in terms of how they're whittling down big boards and how they're you know getting around and, and banging the table for the various prospects they like and don't like. But that doesn't mean that the process you know, didn't start many, many months ago when things were a lot easier to, to achieve in the old school style. So what? where are people right now? And, and just tell us a little bit about the process of, of for, a, for a scout, first of all, before we get into the GMs, what they've gone through to get to the, to the point where we are today. When I spoke to a scout on... Again, I can't remember what day it is today, but I, on Tuesday, um, and I said, you know, are you excited about the Super Bowl? And I North Scout, and I said, you know, excited about the Super Bowl next Thursday. And he was like, I, I mean, I am, but then uh, next Friday, everything begins for 2021. Um, some scouts, in fact, on his team have already started their 2021 work in depth, um, in part because they, the job is sort of done in a way, you know, the boards are being set now by the, by the general managers, by the uh, directors of personnel, by the college scouting directors, assistant GMs, etc. So the scouts are kind of on the periphery, really. All that information over the last three or four weeks, which has been, which has come out of the, which has come out of the combine, which has come out of the senior bowl, and then which has obviously been garnered through the FaceTime meetings that teams have been having. Um, the Dallas Cowboys released a very interesting piece of footage uh, on their Twitter account. In fact, they've done quite a few. They've released uh, a number of, sort of small portion of interviews that they've been doing with players Christian Fulton, Marlon Davidson, Jalen Hurts, uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. But they also had a sort of a minute-long conversation with literally Will McClay, the director of scouting, Jerry Jones, Mike McCarthy, um, Mike Nolan, um, 
special teams head coaches completely escaped me, uh, Jim Fossil's son, uh, John Fossil, um, and all the scouts. That you, they were talking about, although it wasn't identified who they were talking about, I'm pretty sure they were talking about Terrell Burgess, the Utah safety. And they were literally just going from one to another, talking about, look, this is what he does, this is what he brings to the table. And it was, you know, scouts who've been with him, look, he, you know, he's really, he's respected in the weight room, the, the, uh, the weight guys, the strength and conditioning guys will say this about him. He's, somebody else will jump on and say, look, his background is great. Two parents live with them. His dad's a whatever. His mum does this. Um, and really, it's just that kind of, it, it's that final sell. It's that final bang of the table. Now that the interviews are pretty much coming to their conclusion, everything's being done. And, and now it's the final sort of process of, of literally putting one name in front of another on the big board and knowing exactly or trying to know exactly what teams are going to do come draft day. So it's, uh, you know, it's really fine tuning everything that's happened over the past year to get to this point now. I think for me as well, like we joke about Cy being nervous and fans being nervous, but it must be horrendous for scouts, particularly this year. You've got to think like, I mean, there'll be a lot of scouts who are used to not being in the draft room, but there are certainly teams who are a lot more open to having a bigger, a bigger amount of the staff and, and some of the more senior scouts in the room. Like at least if you're in the room, you can you can listen to the discussion happening and and get a feel for it. It's going to be pretty awful this year for them because this is twelve months of their lives that they put in. They file the report, and then it's almost like a coaching staff. You know, you put in your game plan, you call the play, and then it's down to the players to execute. And now it's a little bit like that for these for these scouts because it's now down to the GM to 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 make the decisions. And you could be a scout who has spent 12 months of this um, and and really worked hard and banged the table for certain guys. And you might come out of this with your team having selected literally none of the players that you've, that you've banged the table for. I think, for me, that would be the difficult part of the process for those lower down on the, on the food chain is, is it's their work that goes into the decision, but they have no control over the decision. And I think when it comes to that, the... A few a few front office executives, a few GMs kind of spoke out when it looked like this was going to be the situation for the draft. It was going to have to be done remotely. That this was going to be more difficult from that perspective to be making those decisions, you know, not necessarily having the guys that you trust alongside you, not being able to see the passion in somebody's eyes when they when they really, really are going to 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 bat for somebody. And and I I think we have to remember that everyone's under the same situations. That doesn't mean everyone's going to treat the situation equally necessarily and not everyone's going to be as well planned and as well focused as everyone else when it comes to Thursday night and and how they're going to do things. But whilst the situation itself is so unique, you have to remember that it's unique to all 32 teams in that everyone has to go through the same thing. So it's, yeah, it's devastating for an individual probably, but... I think one of the things you're going to see is that well-run front offices that will have prepared for this from the moment that we started talking about any restrictions will actually gain some kind of advantage on this than than the ones who maybe weren't as prepared. I think surefire single decision-maker teams as well. You know, in New England, you know Belichick makes the decisions. I, I can think Miami's an interesting one, Si. It feels like it's it's a lot more Chris Greer's show now, but in the past you would have had Greer and Tannenbaum and Gase with a senior voice as well. You know, those kind of teams I think might struggle more in this proce- process as it is now. It's, it's interesting because Marvin Allen is actually the guy who's setting the board in Miami. So Marvin Allen was the, the guy who essentially put the Kansas City Chiefs together. Um, along with Brett Beach and, and Andy Reid during the sort of the, the teens of the of the twenty 
I think he was there in 2012 to, to 2018, so was there for drafting Mahomes, Kareem Hunt, Tyreek Hill, Chris Jones, all those players. Um, so he's actually setting the board. Um, it's his board, and, but Chris Greer will have the ultimate final say over uh, over what happens. And the Dolphins, Greer gave his press conference today, said there were eight or nine players very comfortable with at pick five. Um, so we, we shall see how it plays out. But, but I completely agree. And I, I think what's quite interesting is that, you know, two things certainly pertaining to this year is that, and I've seen a number of, you know, respected journalists like Peter King and others like Albert Breer um, talk about, um, you know, what's going <laughs> Sorry, Albert. <laughs> oh, I really should have been my tongue on that. Sorry. But it was very funny. Uh, what's going on? I was just looking at Matt's face. Uh, for those people that don't know, yeah, I mean, we'll just leave it there. Um, so... <laughs> I think what's going to happen. Yeah, I've lost my train of thought now. Um, it was your laugh block. What, what, what's going to happen this year is that the, the general managers and the coaches, some will be in the same location, most will be separate. And I think what they will have is a, a Zoom with with um, GMs and coaches, but also then they'll have a second Zoom on a second screen where the scouts will be on mute. And what you'll find then is that when picks happen, and certainly the, the more that we go through the draft, the scouts will be referred to. You know, just to essentially just reiterate exactly the feeling in the room on player X. And I don't know if people saw last year, but Indianapolis Colts did a very good video in the war room with Chris Ballard um, and, uh, and Ed Ball, Ed, um, whatever his name is, the assistant general manager, and a number of their scouts. And when it, I think it was Rocky Asin who they took, um, uh, it was the guy that they targeted. And as much as they targeted him, as much as they hoped that he was going to fall to him, when Ballard was on the clock, he then turned to the scout who'd been covering Temple uh, and that area uh, and just kind of wanted that final sort of, you know, we're good with this kid, aren't we? And yeah, we're good. He's, you know, he's well-respected. Don't forget, three-year team captain. Guys love him. They loved him at junior college. You know, this is this is our guy. It's just for that kind of... Because these guys have really been on these kids for... for 12, it really is a 12-month process. You've kind of, you know, you've done so much investigation into their background, families, coaches, peewee school coaches, high school coaches, kids they played with, people that they've, you know, had Saturday jobs with, all those sorts of things. They're the people that you're talking to, you're finding out that sort of information. So you really are, you know, you really are putting your neck on the line, but you also are there just to give that sort of final affirmation to the general manager when when it when push comes to shove and you're on the clock and you know you've got a decision to be made I think it's going to be fascinating to see how new GMs get on with this. I think about someone like uh, someone like Andrew Berry in Cleveland, and I know they've got the whole analytics situation with Paul Podesta and everything. But people who are like he's thirty three years old and he's new to the job, and he's only been working in scouting for what thirteen years now at this point. So he's been in probably a few draft rooms. Some of those have been Browns draft rooms, of course, which can be a problem in itself. And I just think you go from that position where you were already going to be the kind of sole person who was doing it and it was going to be your first time but now you're having to do it without that support system necessarily around you I think it's going to feel very lonely when you're a GM being the final decision maker sat in a chair at home on Skype or Zoom or whatever you're on and not really getting to to feel the real feeling in the room about a pick it's going to be I think genuinely fascinating from that kind of perspective two ends of that spectrum as well because on the other end you've got the you know Everybody's favourite punching bag in David Gettleman. Who, like, <laughs> I mean, enough said, isn't it? Like, how 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 is he gonna how is he gonna handle the whole process as well? So I think 
I, 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 do, I do think this draft will be fascinating. I, I mean, I, I'm spending far too much time thinking about it at the moment, as I'm sure we all are. But like, I could, you could almost make the case of of two different strategies for me. And one is to to, to hoard picks because you know that there will. I think on a, from a talent perspective, there will be more picks lower down this year because there are question marks around them than, would, than there would usually be. Now, I can look at that two ways. Either you hoard a load of picks and um, and give yourself multiple kind of lottery tickets, which I, I think is generally always the best strategy in the draft. Or, or, or there might be a situation where teams sat... I mean, I'm obviously looking at it from a Patriots perspective, sat at 23. Really? Right, right in that spot <laughs> where... For me, that is you. That is twenty three. Is about right in that the middle of the spot where the value of the pick is really diminished because you've generally got ten to fifteen guys who are real blue chippers at the top, and then from as a general rule in any draft from fifteen to forty five. So you'd know better this, this better than me. But fifteen to forty five, I generally think there's a there's a situation where really the talent is so different in terms of the boards of each team. Like 15 on one team's board is 45 and vice versa. Um, But now at 23, actually, there might be players there who otherwise wouldn't be just because there's there's one or two question marks around them. And and it's going to be interesting to see how that manifests itself, I think. I think it's going to be... I think I just want to say, I think it's going to be so interesting for guys like Andrew Berry that, that because... No, it doesn't matter what you do in life, really. You know, and we'll, you know, you know, it's like when you're in a in a in a studio and you're doing an interview, and you know, I've been there in big moments in you know in my real job in in, in radio studios when big decisions happen, you know, on on air and big you know breaking news happens, be it you know real life news or sports news and stuff, and you have to make a snapshot decision. Mm. Um, and it's nice just to have somebody sat next to you that you can just look at and go. This is this is the right you know even though I'm in ch- you know even though in charge, it's good just to have somebody looking at you go yeah this is this is good this is right we, we've got do you know what I mean and so for those guys who don't have that you know you look at even an experienced GM like Thomas Dimitrov who spoke to Peter King and did the video with him in, in his draft room I'm sure people would have seen it in his in his room at home and it, talking about how it's showing Peter how his setup was going to be you know the Falcons are talked about as um, as potentially trading up into the top 10 looking at potentially CJ Henderson the cornerback from Florida you just want your assistant you know it's, it's one thing having them on Skype and saying are we good but it's another just you know just a hand on the shoulder the pat on the back the little nod the look that you get so for, for those guys who are new GMs it's going to be a really interesting situation to see how they handle it but ultimately you've got to shut out the noise you've got to shut out the, the the strange way with which we're doing it you've just got to focus on exactly what you're going to be doing and, uh, and the, the way you do that is trusting the process and the preparation that you've gone through because if you're 100% nailed on with what you're going to do in every scenario and teams will have worked out every single scenario that you could possibly think of then they should be fine and I think what people might not understand is right now the parameters of trades not, maybe not right now maybe early next week actually but certainly by this time next week the parameters of trades to move, and this year more than any, from, you know, the, the Falcons are a great example. Clearly, they're, they're thinking about moving up. They will have the parameters of trade deals agreed with two or three teams based yeah. on how the board falls. So, so really, 
I think a lot of people look at it and think, well, they've got 10 minutes. Everything doesn't happen in those 10 minutes. I mean, you see... We <laughs> you, think, you mean it's not like the film draft day? Yeah, exactly like that. <laughs> and, 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 but I'm sure there are times it is a bit like the film draft day, but in the main, teams now have trades that are basically agreed. If this happens and the board falls this way, and they won't be naming who the players are, but they'll be saying if the guy we like is available... And, and and the guy you like isn't sat there, and they'll have a deal worked out. So, and, and I think it's in many ways it's just a case of pressing the button on that deal a lot of the time, as opposed to them. And I'm sure they'll, I'm sure those teams with those trades agree, they'll call other teams at that time and try and get a better deal. Of course they will, but in the main, a lot of this is is preordained to an, an extent greater than I think people realise as well. And the parameters of those trades would have been worked out in Indianapolis at the combine. Yeah. yeah. So, Meals and bar room drinks. That's where the, the the early conversations around trades happen. And there'll be a number of teams down the back end. You know, you look at teams that are aggressive at trading, um, especially those that are aggressive at trading. Out. Atlanta is one of them. You know, historically, Thomas Dimitrovs. It feels like every year. Yeah, absolutely. Pittsburgh. You know, even when Pittsburgh have traded up in the past, traded up last year for um for the linebacker from Michigan, traded up in the past for Troy Polamalu. Um, you know, they are. You know, they can be aggressive when they want to be. So it's, you know, and I know they don't have a first-round pick, but it's teams that have the history of just the, the courage and that they understand, you know, how to work a board experience, Dimitrov experience, Mike Tomlin experience. Um, you know, they, they know what they're doing. It's, um, but those those deals would have been sorted out a, a while ago, certainly, or certainly the parameters of, of deals would have, been, would have been sorted out. Maybe Bill O'Brien's got it right, just have no picks this year and it'd make everything really easy and really relaxed. I think the, I think the phrase Bill O'Brien's got it right doesn't, doesn't work. <laughs> Certainly not uh, in the concept of, brand, concept brand. of team building. I think I'm hearing just, words, just not in the order that I recognise them in. Yeah, I think I just constructed a brand new sentence, actually. Um, the, the, uh, I, I am intrigued as to what GMs are doing this week. Not necessarily this year, but... You were saying about setting the big board. How much movement is there really going to be five days, six days out when they've spent you know, 12 months plus looking at these guys? I mean, 12 months looking, nailing down on these guys, but also obviously having had an eye on them prior to this year. How much really are you moving pieces on the board at this point when realistically outside of you know talking to other teams setting trades surely you should be pretty sure in yourself you know where you want to go next week if opportunities present themselves i think theoretically that is true and i think if you spoke to any gm they would tell you that that's true i think <laughs> in, in practice it isn't true you know just well, just look at draft analysts it's the same thing i mean you, we see these guys and especially now you know, the draft used to be a lot closer to the season, and I think that actually helped evaluators, to be honest, because I think they now overthink it, they over, overdo it, and I'm going to say it again, but Jerry Judy, to me, is the prime example of that. For, for draft analysts, we don't know how the NFL feels about it yet, and I think there are times when draft analysts, in searching for that perfect player, actually get it wrong in terms of what the NFL's really thinking on these guys. It's actually why I, 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 I appreciate probably size rankings more than anybody else. And I'm not just saying that because I'm biased. I'm saying that because I think his fundamental concept on it of, that he, he will probably have said in answer to this question is just select good football players, good college football players, is a good one. And I, and I think that other draft analysts don't necessarily do that as often. But... But I think I think many GMs will do the same. I don't know about you, Si. I wouldn't be surprised if 
there, there are certain GMs who are making wholesale changes to their board in the next seven days and they just look into that a little bit too much and, and overanalyze it? Yeah, I think there's the analysis by paralysis, I think, will, will take place almost because there's nothing else to do in a way. It's like, well, you know, you overthink it, you overthink it, you go back and watch the tape, you don't really trust what you've seen through the season, you don't really trust what you've seen and what you, you've heard. I, I think, certainly I think that some of the, 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 the teams that are more comfortable in their own skins, as it were, the changes that they will make, I think at this point, will come down to, to three things. One, the injury reports now that they get that they're getting, you know, you you saw today that Bryce Hall got the all clear on his ankle, that Ashton Davis got the all clear on his uh, on his groin injury. Um, a number of players came through with with clean bills of medical health. That that would be one, which will either solidify a player. You know, you, you look at especially this year when you're not able to work guys out, you're not able to get the medical teams to get their hands on guys. Um, I think the second part of that is the is any off-field stuff. So Zach Braun, for example, um, was uh, notified that he'd essentially failed a test at the Combine, the Wisconsin off-ball linebacker. Uh, the reason was that essentially he was, I think, was probably using water to mask uh, um, a potential uh, agent uh, in his body. Um and had so much water in his body, he said that he was essentially water-loading to add weight, but the NFL has, uh, has essentially cast doubt on that. And the third is the interviews that are still going on now, will probably go on up until till draft day. You know, you're going to get a guy, and again, I go back to the Dallas Cowboys, but you look at, uh, for example, the, the, there's no way, even from the snippets that you saw on the board, would you come away from seeing the interview with Clyde Edwards-Hilaire and the interview with Marlon Davidson, the defensive end from Auburn, and think anything other than these kids are going to be absolutely fantastic in our locker room. You know, just great personalities, funny, Kenneth, Kenneth self-deprecating. Well another guy that showed his was incredible. I don't know if you saw Yeah, it. yeah. I did, I did. And you just think, you know, the, these are guys, whereas somebody like Christian Fulton, really good player, but, you know, came across as a bit more nervous. And those are the sorts of things that would just spark a little thing in a GM's mind, as if to say, you know, we, we had Fulton and, you know, Jeff Gladney pretty close. And, you know, I just got a better, you know, sometimes it just comes down to feeling, a better vibe, the tape is similar, you know, and, and it's just, you know what, I kind of just felt more comfortable talking to Jeff Gladney. He seemed like he was going to fit better in the organisation. Maybe we'll just put Gladney above Fulton at this point. And, uh, and that's, you know, I think that's where some of the changes come from, from the teams that are, you know, a, a lot more comfortable in their own skins. All right, well, do you want to get into some specific examples, Get have a little look at um, a couple of, of historical ones and maybe hear from some Hall of Famers from the front office plus Jerry Glanville? I'm not saying Jerry Glanville isn't a great, but uh, the other two guys are Hall of Famers. Absolutely a Hall of Fame human being, as, as Sile confirmed, because <laughs> the interview clip that we're going to play started off with him literally showing us a massive bruise on his, on his ass. <laughs> we're not even joking. He literally pulled his shorts down and showed us his ass. Oh, wonderful. I was like, I was like thinking, I, I grew up watching you, Jerry, with the Oilers and, and, you know, Bubba McDowell and, you know, Curtis Duncan and Warren Moon. And, and now I'm looking at your ass cheeks and it doesn't look good, Jerry. It doesn't look good. <laughs> uh, let's start off with Bill Polian. Uh, in fact, Polian and Wolf, I think, went into the Hall of Fame in the same class, didn't they? I think they did, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we'll we'll hear from Bill Polian first, and, and the case we're looking at here is uh, the Peyton Manning versus Ryan Leaf case. When you've got two guys, when there is a genuine deep debate over who should go number one overall for, uh, in terms of quarterbacks, and uh, you know people 
will look back at that now and look at the careers, the relative careers of the two men and be astonished that it was such a debate. But it really, really was. And uh, and obviously Bill Polian ended up falling on a certain side of that debate, which worked out. So then the question became who was going to be the quarterback, Ryan Leaf, Peyton Manning. You've probably heard that story a million times. Uh, the scouting staff was split right down the middle. Uh, people that um, liked Ryan Leaf intensely disliked Peyton Manning. To this day, I don't know why. People that liked Peyton Manning didn't intensely like Ryan Leaf. Just uh, one of those uh, quirks of personality, I guess. Um, we went back and looked at all the film. I asked Bill Walsh to uh, look at the film and give us uh, an outside evaluation. In the end, after working both players out and doing all of the background work that needed to be done and, and, and which had not, really was not in place in Indianapolis, we changed that pretty dramatically um, to what we had done both in Buffalo and Carolina in terms of investigating players' background and personality and character. Um, it, it was clear that Peyton was the right guy. And so that wasn't a hard decision at all. At the time, after we did the work, at the at the time that we we came in, it was uh, both going to be a, a decision that required a great deal of work, and one that probably wasn't very popular. You know, his statue's there today. Um, he walks on water in Indianapolis. It's true that that the stadium, the new stadium, is the house that Peyton built, but at least in the Indianapolis media and with the columnists in, in town at that time, uh, it wasn't popular. Uh, Ryan Leaf was the, the choice of the media. Yeah, and, and I guess that's why the media don't make these, these decisions. I mean, I mean, was there any specific moment that made you lean towards Manning? I mean, you mentioned Bill Walsh. What was his evaluation of, of the two guys? Manning by a pretty wide margin. Okay. Uh, no, there was no one moment. He just pulled away decidedly. The workout, I guess, was probably the the, the linchpin of it. But but he he was far and away better prepared to handle a job. And you've you've been around obviously in Jim Kelly, another Hall of Fame quarterback. But is there anybody that you've ever been around like Peyton in terms of? You know, I'm not sure still there's been anybody in 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 NFL history from the quarterbacks I've looked at and speaking to people who. Who really understood the offense? The uh, understood offense, the offensive system, and, and really what the defense was trying to do before the snap. Quite like Peyton did. I mean, was he like that all the way through, or was that something that developed over time? And, and just what was he like when he when he got into the building? The work habits were there all the way through. Uh, he famously, we had a rule at the time that draft choices couldn't come in until a week after the draft, and he famously said to me. Uh, during one of our pre-draft meetings, uh, by the way, if you draft me, I'll be there the next day. And I said, you, you can't come in the next day. It's against the rules. And he said, I don't care. I'll be there. You figure out how to get around it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, the, that, that, the work ethic was always there. The character, the leadership was always there. Uh, he got great training with Bruce Aarons, uh, with Tom Moore, with Jim Caldwell, Bruce and Tom were instrumental in, in, in helping him grow in the NFL. Uh, but uh, the work habit, the intellect, and, and, and the desire to be the best and leave no stone unturned 
uh, what was always there. Bill Polian on uh, Peyton Manning versus Ryan Leaf. I mean, I joked about it, but back then it really was a huge question mark over who was going to go first overall. So yeah, Bill Polian's given us his, his reasoning for it. What You spoke to him, Matthew. I mean, he made the right decision in the end, but it's fascinating to hear what goes into that. Yeah, it is. And, and what we should point out is, so he obviously mentioned there in the clip that he, he enlisted the, the help for the opinion of Bill Walsh. Now, Walsh, as he says, was emphatically on the side of Manning. Walsh also said that Leaf would definitely be a, a really good NFL quarterback to the you know, elite-level NFL quarterback. So I think the, the ultimate, I think, I would say the ultimate evaluator of quarterbacks gave Ryan Leaf the, the seal of approval as well. And, and I think that's really telling. And, you know, we spoke to Ryan Leaf as well, haven't we, with the Super Bowls, and he, he was... He was in the piece that Cy put together. I have to give give you credit, Cy, because I think that your piece is the main reason for this. But I don't think we've had such good feedback from an issue as we did issue 53, which had the, the QB's piece in. And if people want to read that, it's just sold out in print. Um, so digital copy or... In fact, I think we'll open the digital archive up for free as well. Um, we've opened the archive up, but we'll open this season up as well in the next couple of weeks. So check that out online because it's really worth reading. But yeah, I mean, Leaf obviously he talks a little bit about about fit situation, which is something we're going to get onto next. And 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 say si, it was a situation with with Leaf. He was he was from a very small town. Mm-hmm. He he went to college in a very small town, and, and it was just too big for him, wasn't it? When we went in, and that's that's maybe the bit that sometimes we forget. And you mentioned it about Justin Herbert, didn't you, on the on on the podcast, the, the short yeah. podcast you did? And, and I think that people shouldn't lose sight of that in the evaluation process. It it, it really isn't just physical talent. I, I think if anything, from from reading that piece that you wrote, signed fifty three, from talking to Scott McLuhan as well. The, the reality is that, that actually, the certainly a quarterback, the other elements might be more important than the physical talent at times. Yeah, McLuhan, you know, for those that don't know, was obviously um, assistant GM with John Schneider in, in Seattle and, and, uh, and pretty much before going on to be um, general manager of, um, of the 49ers. And essentially, you know, they, together they drafted, I suspect, six Hall of Famers in, in those first three drafts. He turned both of those teams into Super Bowl yeah. teams through his talent evaluation. I, 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 and if you look at, oh, I saw there was a poll the other day saying the best GM of the decade. Lots of people voted for John Schneider. Actually, if you look at John Schneider's record with and without Scott McLuhan, there is a yeah. huge difference between the two. Very good. But McLuhan said of Leaf, he was probably the best quarterback I've ever scouted in the flesh. This is what he said to me. I love the kid. I gave him a massive, massive grade. Um, you know, and I think that, that Leaf conundrum sort of lies at the heart of uh, of one of the biggest issues in football, which is, you know, what makes one player more likely to succeed than the other? I think that's what we try to look at in that piece through the eyes of quarterbacks. But like you say, you know, Leaf was, uh, and the, the, the comparisons to Herbert, I think on, certainly on this level, do bear fruit in that, you know, he was he was from Bournemouth as as um, as Herbert is from from Eugene. He was a small town kid, went to a small town high school. You know, was the biggest fish in a very small pond. Hadn't really travelled much. Same as 
same as Herbert hasn't hasn't really been out of, of Oregon a great deal other than to play. You know, as a homebody, likes his very close friends, his brothers, his you know his mum and dad. He does a lot of hanging out, lives at home, those sorts of things. Um, and that was the same for, for Leaf, I think. You know, and all of a sudden you go out and you become the face of a franchise. Um, and you, you know, these kids can't handle it. I mean, there was a McLuhan said, you know, there was a joke when he went around campus at Washington State, what's the difference between God and Ryan Leaf? And he said, you know, one of the students said to me, God doesn't think he's Ryan Leaf. Um, and, but, you know, those small town kids have never been challenged. You know, they're always the big dog. They're always the alpha. Um, you know, like I said, Pullman and, and Eugene, small university towns. And all of a sudden, we're supposed to be surprised that, that they can't handle the NFL. It's because they've never been challenged before. It's, you know, it's not anybody's fault. It's just... It's just circumstance, but, you know, these are the decisions that GMs are, are paid to make. And, you know, Scott McLuhan and Bill Pony and, uh, you know, Scott McLuhan and um, the Chargers GM were not the only two to, to make mistakes on, on Leaf. There are a number, you, you know, you go back and look at Bill Walsh's report on Ryan Leaf and talked about how good he was and, you know, what a talent and what an arm and what a player he thought he was going to be. You know, so there were lots and lots of teams that, that were fooled, in inverted commas, by... Um, by Ryan Leaf and, and his ability. So the other one, because you talked about the situation uh, as well. I mean, situation, obviously, where you land is, is a huge thing in addition to this. And, and I always think it's fascinating when you look at guys who are at the top end of the draft who you think, you know, people will call them busts, but often it's not because they were busts because they lacked talent or they lacked mentality. They maybe just landed in the wrong situation. There are, I've heard it from more than one person that they would, um, that essentially that they would, uh, they would rate uh, David Carr over Derek Carr based on what he was coming out of college, but that he landed in a horrendous situation in Houston and, and ended up costing him. Know, by the way. Yeah, well, you know, I'm he just trying to think of an example of being absolutely killed by where it, the situation he landed in. Just that's why I chose him, buddy. That's why I chose him, buddy. <laughs> but we, um, the the interesting one that, uh, that that we wanted to talk about, and that we've got a couple of bits of of audio on, are from Hall of Fame Ron Wolf and the man who was head coach in Atlanta when Brett Favre landed in Atlanta, uh, Jerry Glanville, um, because you know, Brett Favre went on to have a Hall of Fame career despite having only a single year in the in the city that drafted him, which I think uh, might be unique. I think it, yeah, I think it probably is. It certainly mm-hmm. would be a quarterback. Uh, yeah, I think I, there are there are examples in like the the fifties. I can think of like, um, like Bobby Lane. I think in Chicago. Yeah, there's a couple of old ones, but certainly not in the modern era. So, uh, who do you want to hear from first, Matthew? Let's hear from Glanville. He talks about the problems that he had coaching coaching Brett Favre in in Atlanta. He wasn't starting because we had Chris Miller, who was in the Pro Bowl the year before. And uh, I think if he was a starter, he probably would have paid more attention and would have behaved more. But he was young. Uh, he was like a, uh, a coke that hadn't been broken. And uh, his mind was on a lot of things other than football at that time. So uh, he's the only player I ever coached in my career that didn't make it for the team pitcher. So he didn't know when he was going to show up and when he wasn't. So luckily, I think the trade helped him grow up and get it going and behave. And uh, I'm so proud of the way his career ended up. 
and uh, I could have traded him to New York. And I knew if I traded him to New York, nobody would ever know his name. No one would ever know he played because he'd have the same problems he has in Atlanta. Neither Atlanta or New York uh, go to bed that everything's open all night. And I thought, how night Green Bay, everything's closed at nine. Yeah. And that'll, that'll give him a chance. So anything open after nine is Chili Joe's, and you have to decide when you want your chili with or without onions. That's it. <laughs> Jerry Glanville on the difficulties of coaching Brett Favre in Atlanta. So if a guy has been that difficult to coach, having been taken with uh, the well, top pick in the second round, but still a second round pick, why on earth would the Green Bay Packers suddenly give up an absolute haul to get him, you might wonder? I mean, you look at it with hindsight and you say, because he was a great quarterback who had a Hall of Fame career. But uh, Ron Wolf was the man who, who made the ultimate decision on that then and, and kind of explains to us exactly why he still believed in him. We just thought he was an outstanding player, and then he goes to Atlanta, and they don't think he's worth a toot. Thank goodness. Yes. And uh, so uh, I had an opportunity to get the guy, and uh, I had to give up a one, and uh, we did it. And you know, it's one of those things that worked. It's always nice when it works. Yeah, I mean, it was a it was a courageous move on your part, though, because you know. Most people would have thought giving up a one at that time was a, was was too much. I mean, you essentially staked your career on on Brett Favre, and and it paid off handsomely. Yes, you know I did, and you're right, it did. <laughs> I did. No, so, I mean he was only six, and and, and two, two interceptions. That was his uh, professional record: six pass attempts, no completions, two interceptions. In fact. An interesting thing, his first completion in the NFL was in Tampa, and it was to a batted ball. It was to himself. <laughs> so, uh, so, so, anyway. But it, did, you, did you fully grasp when you traded for him how perfect he was for Green Bay? And not just, you know, Green Bay was perfect for him because he'd been, by his own admission, partied too much in Atlanta and... I spoke to Jerry Glanville, who said we could have traded him to New York, but we knew nobody would ever hear his name in New York. You know, Green Bay was perfect for him, but also he. I can't think of a player who fits a, a, a town and its fan base more than, than Brett Favre does those Green Bay Packers. He, caught, he kind of is everything that, that you associate with, with Packer Nation in, in terms of his character as well. Yes, no, I agree with that. I agree with that statement 100%. Uh, you know, he when uh, when he went in the Packers Hall of Fame, they sold out the uh, stadium in less than three hours, cause, uh, five bucks a ticket, so that uh, he could come out and wave to everybody. It's, uh, I mean, that's the reverence he's held. He's held uh, he, with up there. I mean, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Uh, I mean, it's hard hard to be as good as he was, and. Uh, I'll never forget making the deal. He he turned out to be better than even I thought he was. Yeah, and I had I had compared him uh, in the executive committee meeting when I told the the people that really run the run the Packers what I intended to do, and I compared him to uh, to Lou Gehrig and what he he meant to the uh, New York Yankees. Yeah, and, uh, so. He, he's my Lou Gehrig. 
Hall of Fame GM Ron Wolf worked out pretty well for him in the end. Brett Favre goes there, wins his Super Bowl, gets his Hall of Fame jacket, and they had a pretty decent career in the end. It's fair to say, and, and you know, like we were saying previously, all about the situation, Matthew. Yeah, and and, and I spoke to. I spoke to Favre as well for the book and um, I, I just don't have the audio of it but um, we had some audio issues so I ended up shorthanding it for the first time in years and, and he, he literally was said to me I tried to drink up Atlanta I wouldn't be answering these questions had I stayed there and also said that for him uh, breath, uh, Green Bay was just perfect and, you know, and Glanville alluded to that as well when he said we could have sent him to New York but we knew that nobody would ever hear of Brett Favre if he went to New York and 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 it's different reasons for different guys, but ultimately I think I think Favre was was struggling with with issues in Atlanta in the big city, similar to the things we're talking about. I mean, Favre was a Mississippi kid who wanted to be out hunting and doing everything, and and Green Bay just just fit him absolutely perfectly, and and that's the bit that that shouldn't be forgotten. There's been a lot of players, and I'm sure we could all sit and think of them, particularly Sai, who have flamed out in the NFL not because they weren't talented enough to be great NFL players, but because you know, you've got to think that like, in a country as vast as the US as well, it's not like you can just jump in the car, no matter where you're at, for like a Premier League footballer who's from England, for example, and drive home to to your house. You know, you can be you can be a six seven hour flight away, so it's um, it's it's not always easy. Just on the, the the case of the back end of this draft, have we had it. We haven't really had any kind of confirmation or conversation that I've, that I've seen about this. But these guys are going to get picked. That's going to happen. The draft is all going to go through. Fantastic, great. We're, we're delighted. It's still going to happen. There was no going to the facilities for these players, meeting everyone for the first time, doing the usual that they would do off the back of the draft, having meetings with the other rookies. That's that whole thing is going to be a whole other situation to it this year. And I think actually. I'd be intrigued to know if that in any way comes into people's thinking, not necessarily that, but the fact of when you're thinking about who you're picking this year, whether you think to yourselves, how are they going to react to this very unique situation? Are they one of these more mature guys? Are they somebody who is coming from that more leadership perspective who actually will handle this very bizarre situation a little bit better than maybe the other guy we might pick here? Yeah, it's a tough one as well, because essentially you're going to get drafted and then it's like, oh, by the way, buddy, you can't do anything until you know, in August or whenever, you can't see them really, but you need to sort this playbook out. And when you come in on the first day, we're allowing you to be a starter and, you know, you're not going to get any of the mini camps, any of the, the one-to-one coaching that you get with uh, your position coaches normally. You know, obviously you'll get all that over the phone or FaceTime or Zoom or however it's going to work. But there are going to be obviously situations for teams and for players where they just find themselves probably just a little bit at sea because all of a sudden they're they're professionals, but they're not entirely sure what they're supposed to be doing. Now, you know, hope and it, you know, You've seen some of the Zoom videos of Premier League teams. Uh, Liverpool have certainly um, uh, uh, made some of that content uh, available where all the players are getting together and stretching and having a laugh. And that's fine when you've got a squad of, you know, 21 players and a couple of, you know, a few coaches and the manager and that sort of thing and strength and conditioning guys. But when you've got 53 players plus, well, when you, I suppose when you've got up to 90 players plus the coaches, plus, you know, position coaches, strength and conditioning guys, all you know, is it really feasible to have 150 people on a Zoom call? Probably not. So uh, all that's really going to happen is that you're just going to break down in positional groups. And so that those networks and friendships and that, what you talked about there, about leadership things, that, that's not really going to come through until they all get together, which at the moment we don't know what it's going to be. And so it's going to be an awful lot of 
cramming, I think, once teams, once players get to the facility to try and sort of, you know, push through, show that they can be leaders and also show their talent on the field. It's not going to be easy for them. Well, look, I'm excited to see how it does pan out. Excited to see exactly what next week ends up looking like. Um, we've got plenty more content between now and then coming, as well as the stuff on the weekly magazine, Matthew. We've, we're going to have more of Simon's uh, mini draft podcasts. And then next week, we'll do a final pre-draft show, including our interview with Tour, including a final kind of breakdown of those top-tier talents you'll see on round one. And we'll do a full breakdown of the first round as well as a uh, breakdown of the draft after the weekend. So lots more podcasts to come, lots more content from Gridiron Magazine. And uh, and also the draft preview out there now, Matthew. Absolutely. It, it has started arriving with people today. I, I would urge people... To, to bear with us, we have no idea when you're going to get your magazine. I haven't got mine yet, Sai's so got his. It's just very, very variable at the moment because of everything that's going on. Postage is very unpredictable. But it is going to be worth the wait. It's one of my favourite issues. Actually, the last two issues we've done have been as good as any we've put together, and I must give a, a really large portion of the credit to, to, to Sai for that, who's done a, done a great job on both. Wonderful stuff. Uh, well done, everyone, for, uh, for bearing with us and getting through this one. It was a bit of a ramshackle one. Uh, people won't have heard it from the podcast, the uh, the toast-based interruption. I, I, I think, you, I think you just, but it you, was glorious. You, you, you're praising yourselves for getting through it. Um, <laughs> 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 frankly, we, oh. might, we, we might leave some of the audio in. Hey, look, it, was, it was... It was light when we started. It's now very dark. <laughs> well, look, cheers, guys. It, always good fun. And for everyone that's been uh, giving us some great feedback on the weekly magazine, we really appreciate it. At Gridiron on Twitter, at UK Gridiron on Instagram. More podcasts coming, lots more content from Gridiron, so check it out. Thank you so much for listening. This has been The Gridiron Show.